Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel. I am the editor of the TLS. I'm back from a disgraceful holiday, a mere amateur vacationer in the presence of Thea Lenarduzzi, of course. Thea, hello. It's such a shame that you see holidays as disgraceful. Yeah, I know. There's, there's probably some psychological thing we should maybe is. pause to explore at some point. I wanted to mention... Uh, a Are you tweet- about to tell me your other holidays? No, oh. no. Uh, that tweet that was sent to us... About, oh yeah! It was a sign in the Hague. Yeah, outside uh, a cafe. I want to credit the person who sent it to us because it, it made me laugh out loud. Tracy. Tracy. Well, thank you, Tracy Henderson. You may have seen this already. Just walking around the Hague and stopped in my tracks by a cafe's bookless, but claim with freedom, cheese, flowers, and the moon. Who could not be happy? That is a place there that you need to visit. I think it's my home. It is your spiritual home. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Tracy, uh, for that. Here's our special podcast offer for any of you listeners. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19, and you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars. Right, this week, who owns England? A good question asked by Nick Groom, this week reviewing two books that ponder the fate of the British countryside. Can we live in a country which has natural beauty and a fair distribution of housing? He will tell us. We then shift eastwards as we have a special edition of the paper focusing on Asia and Japan in particular. Damien Flanagan will tell us about the life and work of Mishima and En Liang Kong will talk us through the cultural phenomenon that is manga. The idea of the British countryside is sepia-tinted with nostalgia. There's always an idyllic past upon which to reflect, a time when the brooks ran clear and the soul was solaced by the beauty of the natural world. It's preserved in literature too. Nick Groom this week quotes George Orwell's Coming Up for Air, for example, but I'm fond of the land descriptions of a similar vintage in the novels of John Buchan, filled as they are with the robust sense of the sheer generosity of the environment. How much this has been a mirage for decades perhaps doesn't matter. Groom reviews two books that both provide manifestos for reclaiming the countryside. Dieter Helm's green and prosperous land is guardedly optimistic and suggests that we should make a virtue of the urban fantasy of the rural world to ensure that there is a place preserved worth a tourist visiting. Guy Shrubsoul's approach is more journalistic and asks the question, who owns England? It has a predictably depressing answer. Half of the country is the property of just 36,000 people. And while we see record levels of homelessness, there remain 60,000 empty houses in England. The depredation of land has a history going back at least to William the Conqueror, of course, and has continued to the present day. Can it be reversed? And can that process come with a net benefit to the environment? Nick Groom is not as pessimistic as he might be and hopes for a place in which we should all be entitled to breathe the fresh air of green spaces and the countryside. Is this a utopian dream? We will ask him. Nick Groom joins us now. Nick, welcome. Thanks very much. It's good to, good to be talking to you, Steve. Nick, before we get to the optimism, uh, how bad is the current situation, in your view, when it comes to the state of the countryside? Well, I think that, uh, as you say, for centuries, um, the, the countryside has really been a political football. 
um, and it's being represented and, in fact, misrepresented um, in culture um, through the arts. Um, the whole uh, vogue um, of the picturesque and the pastoral uh, was really a way of making the countryside look like it was, uh, yes, yeah, certainly beautiful, uh, but also inefficient and indigent and in need of improvement. So that therefore became a, um, a, a justification, a rationale for privatisation through, um, through enclosure. Um, so th- things, things have been bad for a long time and it's getting much, much worse. But I must say, um, having read Dieter Helm's book, I'm much less pessimistic than I was um, you know, this time uh, a month or two ago. So, so what are his ideas for changing things? They're, 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 they're relatively small, lots of small things, aren't they? They are lots of small things. Uh, first of all, he's an economist. Um, and um, I think that um, conservationists and those who are, uh, see themselves as protectors of the environment uh, have generally uh, been very suspicious um, of economists who you know, obviously are putting a price on things. But I think that he, he's really arguing that, that we have to really um, make these arguments as economic arguments um, and come up with ways of um, valuing um, and quantifying uh, the environment. Uh, because otherwise, you know, it's the only game in town. Uh, we're not going to be able to take those um, issues into account if we don't. Um, so uh, he comes up, you know, he says we have to embrace these arguments. Um, and the way to do so is to think about the overall cost. Um, so really his, um, his mantra, if you like, is make the polluter pay. And that's not just big agri-business uh, um, corporations, but that goes right down to the domestic level um, as well. So we need to be aware of the overall environmental impact of the way that we lead our lives, whether that's using um, air freshener um, or whether it's in terms of um, sort of uh, industrialised farming and the sort of uh, ways in which livestock um, and crops are produced in this country. It, it's such a good point generally that I think, isn't it? Because... We can all have great ideas about the environment, but we never really consider the cost of having a log fire or driving an extra mile or putting some disinfectant down the sink. We kind of we can kind of live free from consequence, particularly if we live in in the city, can't we? Well, precisely. And I think that you know we we cocoon ourselves from those effects. Um, and as with a lot of environmental thinking, and it's it, it's the big picture that's important here. Um, and the fact that there is a there are chains of causation, uh, and we do have you know a you know potentially a huge impact um, on the on the environment. Um, and we have had to say we have done for centuries, and uh, you know um, humans, particularly in this country, um, have shaped um, and moulded uh, and exploited um, the natural environment. Uh, but have also, of course, invested it with memories, with identity. Uh, with culture and it is you know it is a raw material and in fact i was i was going to say that that part of it the kind of the emotional investment i know historically that's been the stronger tool used by conservationists i suppose i'm wondering whether to what extent are people moved by the economic arguments is is dieter helm writing this book sort of for governments or for the public i think he's writing this one for the for the public Um, although of course he does uh, as um, chair of the national capital uh, committee he's an advisor on um, natural um, capital, uh, such as forests and minerals, um, rivers and so forth. Uh, But it's very difficult to quantify beauty. It's very difficult to make an economic argument uh, for a view, for a scenic view, or for the sense of well-being you get from going for a walk in the countryside. But we have to do that. I mean, that's that's, that's, um, the the argument that he's really promoting here, that it is difficult, but um, that's the challenge that we face. But but the, the argument is presumably also that we can't remove the impact of man from the environment. Therefore, we've just got to make it work. I'm, I'm struck by both his suggestions and there's a couple of lines in your piece which make me think you agree that you don't like the idea of rewilding, the idea of trying to artificially return something to nature. We've almost got to accept that we're going to be sending tourists to these places. We've got to make that work rather than try and create an ideal that's not possible. We have to make it work. And one of the Helm's uh, you know, arguments is that farming is such a small part of GDP um, these days, um, you know, tourism is uh, contributes contributes ten times more to the economy, um, and so in that sense, uh, we should be recognising you know, the value of outdoor um, of outdoor pursuits. Uh, but you know, although it's difficult to quantify, you can't quantify the intangible, the immaterial. But it's nevertheless we've got to come up with ways of actually trying to include. 
this in the assessment, in the economic assessment, it, it has to encompass that, you know, the human side of the environment and the way that we have shaped it, uh, the way that it is part of our, our lives and our cultures and, of course, of, uh, part of our future as well. Um, and so that, that's really the challenge that he, um, that he sets up for us. In terms of rewilding, I mean, yes, it's, uh, he's uh, certainly uh, very suspicious of you know, turning the countryside into a safari park full of all sorts of charismatic, exotic creatures, as, as I am as well. Um, I think that uh, the argument has to be much more domestic in terms of how we think about uh, uplands. For example, I mean, he's talking about overgrazing in the Lake District, uh, which has had a, um, a detrimental effect on the, on the environment. But I think that one of the areas in which I would question uh, his, his argument is the fact that this needs to be much more locally sensitive um, so near where I live, for example, on Dartmoor, undergrazing is the problem, um, and that's led to um, this uh, outbreak of, uh, of bracken, which is a you know very sort of in- invasive and monocultural uh, form of foliage. Um, so I think that it's it's important not to have too much of a top-down. Um, approach this. We, we need to be much more locally sensitive. Yeah, I think I think what you describe in Dartmoor is the same um, where I live in the Sussex Downs. The need for sheep grazing is, is quite clear to see, which I suppose brings me to the point that for all the small amount that farming may contribute to our GDP, it's also farming that makes our country look like it, our countryside look like it looks and makes it appealing to, it's, it's, uh, it's to a, the tourists. It's, it's rather ironic that it's enclosure, it's a patchwork. Yeah. Uh, through the privatisation of common land in many places. So it shows that within a, within a few generations, uh, what is sort of seen as a grand theft uh, from, uh, from the uh, rural labouring classes is, is then sort of seen as something which is aesthetically pleasing. And I suppose it also goes to show the, the enormity of the thing that we're dealing with here, because you, sort of, you can't just change a small part of it. You've got to take the thing to its logical conclusion. So if you're going to support... If you're going to allow farming to continue to preserve the way that our landscape looks, then you need to find people who will eat local produce and eventually you end up getting to the end of the line, which is supermarkets. Well, what, what I find convincing about Dieter Helm's argument is that this sentiment, or the more sentimental version of the countryside is a money spinner. Um, and if we were more alive to that, I mean, certainly over the past, I've been a staunch uh, defender of um, particularly small farms um, mm. and thinking about not um, sentimentalising the landscape and, you know, where are the poems about, you know, castration rings and so forth. I mean, there aren't many of those. Although there are a couple of poets, some Jack Thacker, um, Joss Smith, who are, I think, much more alive to that these days. Um, but, um, you know, Helm's argument is, you know, across the whole of the country, I think is persuasive in terms of, you know, we need to rethink our relationship with the countryside um, you know, why do we go there? Why do we value it? And, and therefore, you know, what sort of price can we put on it? Well, let's move on to the other book, because um, that's probably slightly more depressing in some ways. The, the guy Shrub book, Who Owns England? Uh, is land ownership a problem in this country that has been there forever? Well, he certainly argues that, that it's been there since at least the Norman Conquest. And he t- takes that very long view and encompasses uh, certainly enclosures I've mentioned, um, and also rebellions against that, such as um, the diggers, for example, um, yeah. in the mid-17th century, in which you know, communal gardening <laughs> becomes an act of resistance, which I think we should all bear in mind next time we go weeding um, in, the, in the garden. Uh, but I think that it's a very invigorating book. Yes, it, it, is, it, it is dark in terms of um, the revelation that you know, half of um, the land in England is owned by uh, only 36,000 landowners. And, and how difficult it is to actually try to penetrate uh, the, the corners of land and property ownership. But he's doing so, and that's what's invigorating about it, you know, through freedom of information and, frankly, through Trespass, uh, which is, you know, that this is a great book for the, uh, for the armchair activist uh, to, to follow him through his various uh, trespasses. And, well, uh, well, he has to, doesn't he? Because, as you say, only 10% of England and Wales is actually open to the public. Which is extraordinary because we, you know, we all have all touted the right to roam, and you know, there is this um, assumption that it, that it's much more than that. But in fact, that's not the case. Other writers have looked at this as well. I mean, sort of Paul Kingsnorth, for example, about the the privatisation of, of public spaces in in towns and cities as well as in the countryside. 
Uh, so it's in many places that you think ought to be open um, and uh, are in fact uh, privately owned and um, policed by um, private security firms as well. Uh, the trick that, that, that he wants us to play, and indeed this is probably the Green New Deal argument as well that we've discussed on, on this podcast before, which is at a time when you have to start changing things like economic inequality, things like the housing crisis, which is there's not enough properties available for people who need them. As you say, there's 60,000 empty houses. Can we look after the economics and at the same time make strides in improving the environment? Or is it almost a decision where we can have uh, economic benefit but not environmental, uh, or environmental but not economic? That's, that's, that's a very interesting point. I guess um, that you have to think about social issues um, and in terms of uh, things like um, you know, uh, housing uh, for um, uh, for, for, for people, I mean that that's that's absolutely um, crucial. I mean, we, you know, the, the, there there is a an element of a social responsibility here, but the Shropshire is certainly alive um, to the um, environmental um, benefits. Um, and again, it's, it's it's quite a gradualist approach that, he, that he's offering. It's a series of small changes. Uh, but I mean, he believes very much in in conservation um, and access. It's access and giving communities a stake in the land. Um, and therefore encouraging them to, you know, to take that ownership and to, and to, and to preserve it, look after it, um, cultivate it and sustain it um, themselves. So I think that, that there is a positive aspect um, to this. I mean, both of them, uh, both these writers want us to leave the environment in general um, as, a better, um, as a better place. So, so they are both looking towards a, um, a future here. Is it, um, just to, be, to end where we began, is nostalgia dangerous? Do you think, Nick? Because in some ways, nostalgia has has uh, provided a boost for an entire publishing industry in terms of nature writing and getting back to the wild. And you know, you, it's you, also swayed a massive vote quite recently. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we are a nation of nostalgic people. Is that unhealthy? Do you think? You know, you quote Orwell. I think of those John Buchan books. If we're constantly looking over our shoulder and thinking, "Oh, there was once a time when," you know, there was lots of leafy land and and people were striding around happily and freely, is that dangerous? Do you think? Well, I think the reason why I quote Orwell is to show that people were thinking in this way in the 1930s, um, and people have obviously been thinking about it for, uh, for centuries, uh, that they, the, 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 the countryside almost by its very nature, uh, I don't want to use too many puns here, but it, it, is, it, it, it is formed by nostalgia, by memories, uh, by its relationship to heritage. Um, it's, it's, it's imbued with that, with that collective meaning. I think that nostalgia and reliance on the past can be abused when it's used to really um, justify or add a sort of allure um, to particular practices or customs or, or attitudes. You know, heritage is really about the future. Um, it's not about the past. It's about where we go on to next, taking the values uh, that we wish to uh, really bequeath uh, to our children and grandchildren um, and looking, looking forward. Um, so we can use um, the environment as a great, I mean, I've called it a, it's like a green library, it's a heritage site. Uh, but we need to be selective about that and not just um, become misty-eyed um, about the past, but actually become clear-sighted about the future. That's a good way uh, to leave it. Nick Green, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Steve. Thea, I was going to ask you, you're now a country lady, <laughs> a landed lady. I mean, there was a whole conversation we had a long time ago about you being a feudal lady. Let's not go back to that. No. Uh, I do give up those things with such reluctance. But the uh, has, has your behaviour, attitudes changed? Because you've moved sort of into the Sussex Downs. Does, does, does it, has it affected you? Yeah, I'm able to buy locally in a way that I wasn't before. So that was my point about, about supermarkets and how, how you sort of can't just change one small thing. If you're, if you're going to kind of try to insert yourself into the into your surroundings and minimize the damage that you cause to it it's a very simple way of doing that and it's just to to support small local farmers as opposed to the massive agribusiness ones yeah the point of that pay um the polluter pays thing is that the question is always who's going to pay and will these agribusiness these huge huge agribusinesses ever actually pay for the damage that they do or will it just be like the huge tech firms who pay a, yeah. a suspiciously small amount of tax. And can afford, in any event, to pay more than they ever will do. Yeah, they, exactly. They cause more damage than they pay. I exactly. It's just interesting that we've had a couple of pieces that are more optimistic than yeah. lived experience would suggest. Because that Green New Deal thing we yeah. talked about was kind of weirdly optimistic. Yeah. Uh, and Nick Greenman doesn't strike me as a particularly sort of 
you know, head in the clouds man. No, and it's interesting that in, in both cases, it's sort of, it's quite compelling, this idea of a return to the old ways being, in a sense, modernisation. Yeah. And, you know, so you're going back to the old ways of living where, you know, where you bought locally, where you... Uh, had a clearer sense of your impact, all of those sorts of things. That's both. That's motiv- motivating factor uh, yeah. in both of them. But will it happen? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you've got to hope it will. Well, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> I'm not sure human nature's like that. I just think human nature, in the end, is. It takes strong these, yeah, visionary the, governments, and there aren't very the, many of those. I think we're not going to get one. <laughs> I would think in a long time. <laughs> no. No. All right, we killed that. We killed the mood. Well done. I tried. I tried. <laughs> This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I must admit, if you say manga to me, all I can think of is the violent and exceedingly sexualised Japanese anime versions of original comic strips shown on Italian TV in the early 90s, including Sailor Moon, about an unnaturally buxom schoolgirl superhero who, with the help of a magical brooch and a gang of equally superhuman friends, must save the solar system, and Mira Ishiro, known here, I think, as Attacker Yu... Does that ring any bells? Not to me. I think that's what it was don't, called. Don't bring, in don't bring us into your mad Italian childhood of weirdness. We all know what Italian TV's like. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that these ones were imported into, yeah. uh, into Italy. Anyway, it's a, so Mira Shiro is about some really, really brutal and fraught volleyball matches. None of which seem particularly suitable. I kind of worry about your childhood, suitable. actually. What was, the dog th- what was the dog thing? The dog Wish eating Jane That was American. Yeah, okay. And that was excellent. Okay. I will hear no badness oh, right, about that. Um, that was my introduction to manga. I mean, I'm assuming that there is more to it than that. I mean, there almost certainly is. And indeed, you would have to hope so, because the August British Museum in London is currently, until August 26th, home to what is being billed as the largest exhibition of manga ever to take place outside of Japan. En Liang Kong went along to review the exhibition for us and he joins us now to share some thoughts. Hello, En Liang. Hi. How do we define manga precisely? I mean, in Japan, it, it, doesn't it just mean comics, whereas else, elsewhere now here it sort of denotes specific Japanese style of comic? Yeah, so I think this is, this is one of the central uh, difficult strands running through the exhibition because it, um, it has an immediate history and then it has an even more kind of an ancient history. Um, so manga, like, literally means pictures running riot. Um, that is great. That's a lovely. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. Um, and 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 the curator Nicole Kalitra-Rosmania, um, she, you know, she's able to, in this in in the British Museum show is able to um, look back at its most immediate roots. So that's sometimes in the nineteenth century um, when you have sort of Western expat artists beginning to intermingle with local artistic traditions. You know, it's very much it's very much a form born of um, opening up to the world. Really, um, and sometimes you know, politi- very politically charged. So, the arrival of Walt Disney into occupied Japan was a formative influence, apparently, for um, 
Tezuka Osamu, who's now known as the the god or godfather of manga, um, and he created Astro Boy in the 1950s. Uh, with this, an- this android orphan, sort of looking for looking for peace and uh, and justice in this in this cruel world. But the but the, the exhibition argues that that manga pre- it it predates that because you could trace it back to Hokusai's great. Wave I think and- I think it's careful around that, and I and and the way I describe it is um, presenting um, a story of art history as like clashing collage mm-hmm. rather than um, talking about direct lineage. So yes, you, the the term itself you can date into the. 18th century, so it's used to describe uh, Hokusai's uh, sort of wild sketches of street life and um, and myths. Terms also used um, by the sort of this woodblock uh, printing culture um, in the 18th century. Again, um, sort of narrating the life of um, uh, Yukioi, which is the uh, this floating world, um, sort of seedy floating world of courtesans and playboys and actors. Um, so it does have that art historical trace. And the show is sort of brilliantly curated in the sense that it's it's sharply curated in the sense that it's it's drawing connections between things that you wouldn't have thought evident. To us, it's uh, manga is presented back to us in the West as very Japanese, almost kind of a distillation of of Japanese culture. It's interesting that it it actually is born in its current form from an intermingling of West meeting East. Yeah, but there, there is there is also that intermingling. Um, so um, you know, even in um, sort of Western sort of graphic novel traditions. Um, Frank Miller, uh, his his work has been very very influenced by uh, manga as well. So it has it has always had that um, that Dialogue. kind of cross cultural flow. Um, and also, you know, even if you think about it, sort of we're living in um, the age of the Marvel franchise and in the age of sort of this golden age of comic comic book time, basically governing a lot of pop culture at the moment. Um, and um, you know, of course, that has its um, Sort of mythical and art historical roots in the Western tradition as well, of course. Yeah. And was this exhibition full of flashbacks for you? Did you? I mean, did you grow up reading much manga? Um, it wasn't full of flashbacks in the sense that I did. I did grow up uh, reading manga uh, on uh, a few sort of summer childhoods spent in Singapore or sort of in Asia. Um, and but I had a very strange introduction to manga I, for some reason. Uh, which escapes me. Was now. it as strange as mine? Uh, no, not quite as <laughs> no, not quite no, as no, strange. No, no. Well, well maybe I, you go on. <laughs> I was, uh, I'll be the judge. Of I that. got really into <laughs> Salaryman manga, which is this genre of manga, uh, which uh, narrates the life of like middle management Japan um, and the kind of like that daily cool. tribulations of uh, people trying to work their way up the corporate ladder. It sounds like Dilbert. You know that, yeah. that long running cartoon. Yeah, but entirely serious. <laughs> Oh, oh, really serious? Yeah, no, there's, there's no, there's no gag involved. Oh, right. So you're just um, sitting there reading serious yeah. cartoons about middle management. And 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 this and this particular this particular one, which is called um, Salaryman Kosakoshima, the the character's become a celebrity in Japan. So he endorses beer and it's sold millions and millions of copies. And he he presents good Japanese values. He's very humble and. Uh, because I'm interested in that because to me when Thea talks about her unnaturally buxom schoolgirl yeah. uh, manga manga to me as someone who's not experienced it I think of sex and violence uh, and, it, and it being a kind of really quite creepy blend of the two so often very sexualized violence or very violent sex is that my misjudgment or is that how some of it's been presented back to to western culture Where, am I completely wrong about that well I think the I think the, the you know obviously the exhibition is 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 careful to um, sort of stray, stray away from the the more sexualized kind of manga, um, and the catalogue that that accompanies the show is actually much more explicit about um, looking at the relationship between um, erotic woodblock printing shunga um, and its uh, manifestations in in kind of in different kinds of manga and actually in the way it has some representations of um, abuse and um, you know uh, the female body have become much more aggressive, and the the male gaze is much more of a thing in in contemporary manga. But the point is also that it's you know that's just one of many different genres. That mm. you know the the, the salaryman manga, the robot, uh, the the giant smashing robot manga, um, the sports manga. Yeah. All of these are um you know will sell millions of copies that have their own you know own walls and their own fans so so you sort of go out and choose kind of which strand you want to you want to 
get into, I suppose. It's probably the hypersexual stuff. Wasn't there kind of progressive um, uh, relaxing of censorship in Japan in the 90s? So possibly that that's when that flourished. And there have been works that yeah. have, um, you know, have have sought to, you know, break the the boundaries of, you know, what's considered sexually acceptable in Japan, especially yeah. dealing with like homoerotic love as well. And so that's that's been foregrounded um, in the curation of the show. So I was thinking, I was reading the Watchmen book, um, you know, the graphic novel, and the person who wrote that said he tried to create in Watchmen. Uh, this moment of introspection about comics. It was all about comics exploring their origins. But he said the lesson that people took from it was darkness and violence. And he Mm. said, if you look at all the comics that followed Watchmen and Frank Miller's Batman series doing the same thing, it was all about violence and darkness. Whereas actually the intent of the book or the original comics was to be much more thoughtful than that. But the the the, the legacy was just oh, violence is is a, it can be drawn in, in in this way. And I wonder whether we've got an over or I and people have an oversimplified view of manga because that's just the one thing that's felt to have had cultural mm. impact over here. I also think that you're doing something very different to manga when and to comic books when you uh, begin to put it into when you put it into the white cube when you put it into glass vitrines then you're no longer reading them in the intimate space of your your home um, and you you're actually just less invested in narrative because I you know I went to the to the show and I didn't really know like half of the the stories that you know available um, on on display um, and you're really made to I think the show is like really making you consider the detail mm. the grammatical structures of the coded meaning that run through these images um, and to take the you know the the hand drawn line that's still so important in Magda to, to take that seriously to to take these as you know serious creative artistic works as well not just a sto- an addictive storyline that you you consume in you consume in private and do you have a sense of whether that is how people tend to see it in Japan I mean is it is it a high form a low form is it is it both does it not really fit into one or the other who I, who reads it is it does it matter how old you are no I mean I definitely don't think I definitely don't you know uh, wouldn't say that's that's a reason for for um, treating it as a as a high art or also low, low art I mean it makes me think of there was a show two years ago at House of Illustration um, which focused on the backgrounds of um, anime so looking at the painstakingly crafted watercolour layouts and, and, and urban backgrounds that, that you find in across sort of Japanese anime films um, and the curator when he went to Tokyo to, sort of, to try and source these products the the artist behind him thought he was completely crazy you know like why on earth would you want to put this into a museum and mm. i'm sure lots of the artists here are similarly sort of bemused that their work is is on show at like an august institution like the british museum but you know treating it as as high art or looking at it taking time basically to look at how how it functions how it why it immerses you that's the i guess the benefit of bring it into something like a museum or a gallery space. Is it beautiful? I mean, there are the moments where, because that's in, in the, the real test of, of all visual art, really, at some level, isn't it? I mean, are you walking around saying, these are moments of beauty, these are moments of uh, of created beautiful drawings? Yes, on, so so in some watercolour sketches, there's a there's a, a beautiful series of um, gouache and paper uh, layouts for Saito Takao's um, 1967 Muyo um this bounty hunter watching this fight breaking out between two uh, warriors on horseback and you know the expressive colour of the sky um, the, the, the sort of black screech marks that appear when, when the horse you know the, the, it's a wonderfully evocative scene also I mean I think your eye is just nonetheless drawn to the historical pieces that are on display. Um, so there's this amazing 17 meter stretch long cu- length of curtain, this theatre curtain, created in the 19th century by uh, Kawanabe Kiyosai, created while he was like completely steaming drunk uh, from several <laughs> bottles of sake. Create, surely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's really, you know, this it's uh, these possessed theatrical costumes that leap out of their boxes, um, really spooky. Um, so you know, there are. It's it, I get. I suppose it's easier for the eye to. Um, be more immediately drawn to the art historical connections that uh, that are being created out of this. Um, but I think what I was most drawn to in terms of these works like Capacity for Beauty is the ability to, to do things, um, you know, without text, to evoke emotions, um, to evoke experiences um, without saying anything explicitly. 
that is something that uh, you know manga has real potential for because it has this um, you know this coded system of um, symbols that you know once you're kind of immersed in that world you begin to to recognize um, this amazing strip of this uh, uh, saxophonist cartoon Shinichi Ishizuka's Blue Giant Supreme and uh, you know when he begins to play the entire background of the of the strip begins to turn into this like strange astral sort of rain and you see those sort of double basses twanging away these like, huge sort of thud marks like leaping across the page and there's a really fantastic essay in the catalogue where the scholar Itago talks about how strange this is with um, musical manga. He says, readers become the listening audience, expanding their imagination while manga artists play inaudible sounds. You know, that's the sort of fantastic thing about about, about an image like that, that, you know, we're all seeing the same image, image but presumably we're, we're hearing completely different music. I think I'm going to have to go along. Yeah, we've got time. Yeah. Is it air-conditioned? <laughs> I'll be all right either way. It's cool. Yeah, it's you, cool. You, this, 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 this heat's not bothering you. No, it's perfect. Oh, for God's sake. We're never going to agree on that. Let's agree on manga, but not on that. <laughs> uh, and the Kong, thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you very much. Kimitaki Hiraoka was 19 when he feigned illness to avoid conscription in 1944 and probable death in combat. He survived to be a chronicler of the existential angst of post-war Japan, adopting the pen name of Yukio Mishima and becoming a literary darling of the 1950s. This wonderkind produced best-selling serialised stories and plays and then was tempted by the world of film acting. He dreamed of becoming the Thomas Mann of modern Japan and the Japanese James Dean. Damien Flanagan charts the life of a man who, as well as writing, threw himself into the roles of photographic model, film producer, stage director, political activist, and finally, fatally, leader of his own private army. And that was just the 1960s. In 1970, he killed himself by ritual disemboweling. Who was this figure who has a 42-volume complete works? Well, Damien has read two new translations of relatively minor works, Star and The Frolic of the Beasts. He can tell us more about Mishima now. Damien, hello. Hi. Um, what should we begin to know about him, both in terms of his, his life and style? What, the, what, are, what are the first thing that comes to, to your mind that people should know about him? Mishima was a master of language, I think, for, first and foremost. He, he writes um, in the most incredibly beautiful um, Japanese. He, he's a, a master stylist. And I think it's a, a challenge for every translator to convey that beauty in a foreign language. It, it, one of Mishima's great themes is the subject of beauty itself, of uh, how beauty impacts on human beings. And because he's so interested in, in that subject, I mean, he talks in, his, um, in, in some of his works as aesthetic terrorism hmm. of, um, of beauty actually uh, almost attacking you and over, over, um, overwhelming you. So I think the, the great challenge for any translator is to, is to try and convey something of that uh, felicity with words that Mishima has. But he's also a man of fascinating, almost unique themes. I think Mishima probed uncomfortable areas of the psyche and that few other authors dared to go. He was um, uh, probes into the kind of murderous instincts within human beings, sadomasochism, suppressed sexuality. And he's he's a great intellectual figure. He's borrowing from um, ideas from all over the world, vastly um, well read at, at uh, university. He'd actually studied German law um, and could read fluently in German, but was also extremely uh, interested in what was happening in the English language speaking world. Fascinated by as diverse countries as India and what was going on in China and Southeast Asia. So I think you're talking about a combination of, in his writing, someone of enormous intellect mixed in with someone with a tremendous technical capacity for writing, which means you're dealing with a major literary figure. How did this come about? What I mean, what was his childhood like? I don't think he lived in a particularly literary family, did he? Well, he had um, a very um, unique and peculiar childhood. Um, he, he was... Um, Descended from um, a, a family, uh, a bit of a mixed family that on, on one side had had sort of um, aristocratic connections. On another side was 
quite humble, but had come up in the 19th century when uh, Japan had modernized. His um, father's side of the family was sort of um, rising stars in the um, uh, in the new order of modern Japan and sort of married into the more aristocratic side. But it had all gone badly wrong when um, his uh, grandfather, who, who had actually been governor of a, a province, of um, a newly acquired province of what's now Sakhalin, uh, owned by Russia, um, had been involved in a scandal. And the family had gone from being very prominent to essentially being faded glory. Um, his grandmother was very indignant, who'd been from the aristocratic side, was very indignant about what had happened to the family. And she was sort of determined that the new generation, her grandson, would revive the family fortune. She'd been quite disappointed in her son's performance. <laughs> so when um, Kimitake, which is uh, Yukio Mishima's real name, was born, she essentially um, took the child from the parents and said, I'm going to raise this child myself. So Kimitake was um, quite a sickly child, and his grandmother was also quite sickly. And uh, she wanted to prevent as much as possible um, the child going outside. She was very worried about um, his health and wanted to keep him quite close to her and also to nurse her. So what this meant was his, his early childhood was very much kept indoors. And he was prevented from playing with um, other boys, um, but instead kind of lost himself in a fantasy world of books. She, she was a, a regular theatre-goer. She, she liked to go to um, uh, traditional forms of Japanese theatre, like kabuki, um, which tends to be uh, often quite outlandish plots and, and quite violent. And he uh, absorbed all this uh, great theatrical interest from her and also um, got used to being in the confined space of her um, bedroom and absorbing all the reading material um, around him. So when he wrote his um, famous sort of breakout book, uh, published in 1949, Confessions of a Mask, he talks in a kind of lightly fictionalised manner, but, but mostly autobiographical, um, of all these um, different books and influences that he was reading as a child that were really um, feeding this uh, imagination. So it becomes from the very earliest years that the sort of world of the imagination and fantasy becomes stronger in the child's mind than the actual um, reality outside. And this becomes one of the great themes of, of Mishima, of... Um, of the interaction and tensions between imagination and reality. And then in, in the 50s, you, you talk about his, that breakout book in 1949. In the 50s, he's, he's, he writes things that are recognised as classics, but he's also a massive bestseller. He's producing uh, books that are presumably seen as sort of populist light works. By the time he's getting to the end of the 1950s, what sort of figure is he in Japan? Just the superstar, superstar author, is that where he gets to? That's right. He's he's um he's from an, an early age. Mishima and his father had always opposed his um, uh, writing ambitions because he he wanted his son to be like a bureaucrat in the family tradition, and Mishima had always had to sort of um, covertly write as a as a young child and sort of prove to his father. And there's a famous anecdote that goes um, uh, when his father finally um, agreed to his son stopping his bureaucratic career. He actually worked as a, a bureaucrat briefly in his early 20s. Um, the, the famous anecdote goes, his father looks at him and says, well, make sure you're the most famous writer in Japan then. <laughs> um, and I, I think Mishima took this very, very literally. He, he wanted to be, when he achieved them fame with their Confessions of a Mask, he'd already written extensively before then, but it, it hadn't... Um, uh, received um, great popularity previously. But when he finally achieves that success in his early 20s, he's determined that he will keep on building from there and that uh, he wants to carry on producing great literary works. But he also wants to... Um, he's extremely in tune with what's happening at, uh, at the time. Uh, Japan was greatly um, westernising, picking up American influences. Uh, the country is very much in... Um, a period of transition in that post-war period. And he's very alert to that, want, wants to himself um, keep changing, moving forward. 
And he shows that he's equally adept at writing extremely popular works that will um, sell in the hundreds of thousands um, for women's magazines and uh, other popular um, outlets like that, as well as um, uh, keeping building on this on this um, a very strong literary reputation. And he didn't just write um, novels. He was also um, writing plays, both in the... Uh, Western and Japanese traditions. He very often said he's um, one of the few writers, possibly the only writer in post-war Japan, who could write traditional kabuki plays that actually sounded like proper kabuki plays because he'd so mastered the, the language of those plays. He also revived the no Japanese play tradition, uh, wrote some modern no plays, and also wrote a tremendous number of short stories, um, memoirs, um, essays, so just a, an extraordinarily prolific um, figure who, by the um, end of the 1950s, um, it has a, a huge army uh, of fans um, in Japan across many different um, uh, genres. Some of the, the leading um, critics of, of Japan had already recognized him as an outstanding uh, uh, talent and, and had actually said to him in um, interviews they'd had, you know, you are exceedingly talented. So by the time we get to the, the period that these um, two works um, that we're discussing today were published at the end of the 1950s, he's someone who is nationally famous and has already a very high um, literary reputation, even though he's only in his early 30s. And how were these new works received then? Well, I think the, 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 because Mishima wrote so much, these are just, I think, works that are... Um, a part of, of a vast repertoire for um, Mishima. I mean, Star, which is um, his fascinating um, sort of fictional insight into his experience of the movie-making industry, um, is not a work that's well-known in, in Japan. But it, it's fascinating that you can take what a work that's kind of buried in his complete works and you can discover it to be completely fascinating in its, in its own right. It's almost like you've got so many um, treasures in the complete works that, that some of the uh, smaller diamonds tend to be missed. But when you pull them out and look at them in isolation, you can think, well, that really is interesting in its own right, but generally tends not to get the attention it might get otherwise because he had so many other um, large-scale works, such as the Temple of the Golden Pavilion or... The Sound of Waves, or many works such as that, which which were getting attention. You mentioned his suppressed sexuality in the books and in his own life. He was gay. Um, how openly could could that manifest itself, kind of, in his life, and therefore, how much did it manifest itself in the books? Do you think? I think in 1950s uh, Japan and the West, uh, I think it was very much um, uh, homosexuality. I think tended to be thought of a characteristic which um, almost like a sort of bad habit that you could train yourself out of if you put your mind to it. Um, so that it wasn't, it wasn't something that was necessarily regarded as innate and unalterable. Uh, it was regarded as something that in the manner of uh, Mishima, for example, had started off um, with quite a weak physical body and he took it into his head that he was going to uh, get himself a strong body. And he took up various physical exercises, such as uh, boxing and, and uh, martial arts, and eventually bodybuilding, and transformed his body physically. And he also felt that if he um, dedicated it to himself to it, he could also, to a, a large extent, manage to adapt himself sexually as well. So um, although he he admitted that he didn't really enjoy uh, physical acts with the opposite sex. He felt he could sort of train himself that if he, if he um, went out with a woman, he could eventually get used to this. And in, for example, in 1958, um, he got married and he subsequently had two children. But I don't think there's really any doubt that Mishima was in reality, um, uh, pretty much a, a, a completely gay man who was just having to sort of um, force himself to go through these motions. Mishima was attracted to the idea 
that he could kind of put up a respectable facade to society. He wanted to have a family unit, uh, a wife. He, he, his marriage um, was in some ways a successful one because his, his wife um, supported him. They seemed to get on well together. Um, and he wanted to have children. I, I think he, what he had to do sexually was increasingly hide his sexuality, certainly from the eyes of the general public and any, anyone that he didn't think would uh, readily be understanding of it. It's interesting that in his, his early works, Confessions of a Mask, um, he seems to be like coming out um, as a gay man. It's, uh, it's for, I think, many... Um, uh, gay people. It's an iconic work that um, people are very grateful that, that he, he wrote such a, a, um, a, a wonderfully frank um, account of his own sexuality. But bizarrely, it, it was actually treated as fiction. I mean, his, his own family um, dismissed it as a load of nonsense. Well, his, his, dad, his dad sort of had an absolute fear of any effeminacy, didn't he? Sort of... That's right. That's right. And, and um, uh, the problem I think with, with him, he's got this forty-two volumes of his complete works, David. We could spend the next hour talking about. It could I mean, be a fixed segment. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Can we do another bit more? Uh, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm afraid we, we've we've run out of time. But thank you so much. It's, what a fascinating um, figure and. Um, uh, you've brought these two books uh, to life in, in the paper and talked much more about everything else there. So, Damien Flanagan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Um, we actually have an extract from a late story by Mishima, translated by Stephen Dodd in this week's TLS. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Nick Groom, Damien Flanagan and En Liang Kong. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. This week has lots in it. Next week, there will be poetry and an attack on the American justice system. Until then, from fear and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.